I'm really excited about uh, today's message, uh, really, uh, because I think I'm preaching out of, you know, it's best when you're preaching to yourself that you know it's like good, because like, God is hitting you at every point of the, of the message. But a part of it also is that in our times of prayer for the church, realizing the season that we're in, that it's about the right time for us to, really, the way that God calculates all this stuff is really uh, up to him, and it just works out just so well. And so I'm really excited also to um, see a bunch of young people just right up here. I mean, like, I'm, I'm super excited that young people are here, right? <laughs> and so part of that is also because um, yesterday God uh, used our band, uh, Adam and a couple of the other, Gable and Katie and Phil and... Uh, and Isaac, uh, they had a chance to play at a youth event at Canada's Wonderland, and we were part of that, and it was so cool. We had about 350 youth there uh, that they got to lead worship for, so it was really exciting. And I was like, oh, God, do that here at Trinity Life as well. Continue to grow the young people at our church. And even though we're a relatively young church in terms of years and age, uh, you know, you 30-year-olds, you're not young anymore. Like, advertising is not catered towards you anymore, just to let you know. You've graduated beyond, like, the next generation, all right? So uh, you'll understand what I'm going to talk about a little bit later. But, I mean, uh, just really excited that God is continuing to draw young people to our church, and that really is our heartbeat. A couple of announcements before we jump into the uh, scripture for today um, is uh, next week is going to be a really, man... um, a pivotal service for us, at least um, in this series. We're closing off our Book of James series. We're going to be talking about prayer and healing, and we're not just going to talk about it, but we're going to expect that God will do those things in our midst. And so that's kind of a faith thing, but we're saying, God, next week as we gather together, as we pray and seek you, would you show up and give healing, right? And some of us who haven't grown up in church and you're really skeptical about like healing and supernatural stuff, come and bring other people, right? Nothing up our sleeves. We're just going to be praying and we're going to be studying God's word, but we're also going to be asking God to really do a work among us. And so I want to, especially those who you know, they're struggling with physical uh, ailments, uh, emotional and mental uh, sickness, and then spiritual sickness as well. It's a great opportunity for us to invite uh, those, and maybe you yourself are struggling with some of those things. What we'll do is we'll go through God's word, we'll worship, uh, and then at the end of our service, we'll have plenty of time for you to be prayed over as well. And so I uh, just really am looking forward to that. Um, so, all right, um, we are in week, I think, 15 of our Book of James series. So this is the longest series that we've had as a church. And uh, next week is our last. And today is actually uh, entitled Patient and Steadfast. That's the title of this week's sermon. And uh, really, as Wendy was reading this passage, I don't know how much of it you were taking in, but there's a strong correlation between what James is talking about, patient and steadfast, and what the first century church Uh, Those who are history buffs, the first church that ever like existed in the first century. There's a correlation between what he says and what they experience in the first century. Because what happens is that the first century church, they experience a lot of resistance and persecution. All right. And so if you study the history of the church, you don't have to be a believer, but if you study just the movement of the church, that in that first to second century, they resisted, uh, they faced a lot of resistance. As a matter of fact, it got to the point where Christianity was growing so much that the Roman Empire began actually uh, uh, instituting uh, um, uh, procedures to execute Christians. And so um, I know that that doesn't happen like in North America and it seems so remote for us. 
But there's a correlation between what James is saying and what the first church experienced. And so um, um, I don't know if you are a history buff, but there is a guy uh, from the uh, second century, early second century, named Pliny the Younger. Does that ring a bell to anybody at all? No. Okay, all right, a couple of people you paid attention in class. Pliny the Younger was uh, one of the governors of uh, the Roman Empire under a guy named uh, Trajan. And Trajan was the emperor um, at right around 100 AD, all right? And so Pliny begins writing these letters. We got a picture of Pliny. We put him up there. We, nobody knows how he looks like, but uh, whatever artist drew this decided that this is what Pliny looks like. And so... Um, who knows what a guy looks like from 2,000 years ago, right? Uh, and so Pliny writes a letter to Trajan saying, hey, there are all these Christians. I don't know who they are, but they're flooding my region. And he's actually governor over Turkey, uh, modern-day Turkey. And so I don't know who they are, but they're really annoying us because they won't worship the emperor. And so what do we do? They're not committing crimes. And so this is in his letter that he's writing to Trajan. You can pull it up. You can Google it and you'll read this letter. They're not committing crimes, but I've come up with the procedure to get rid of them. Okay, And so he gets uh, permission from Trajan, the emperor. And Trajan, at least at this point, has had enough experience with them where this is what he thought. He says, every time Christians gather, that this is a seed for political and civic unrest. It's a threat to the emperor and to the empire. And so Trajan uh, does not like Christians. And so uh, he authorizes Pliny to use force and execution to minimize the growth of Christianity in his region. All right. And so um, there's actually um, a, a letter that Pliny wrote and uh, writes, and I want to read from it. And this is his letter that he wrote to Trajan in 112 AD. He says, I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. For I had no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy surely deserve to be punished. All right. What, what's Pliny saying about why he punished him? I've got it highlighted in dark. <laughs> it's because they persist, and they're stubborn, and they have inflexible obstinacy. These people are like, they're relentless. They just continue to spread their message. They're, they're, they're so annoying. James caused them, all right, the flip side. From, from James's perspective, from their perspective, James caused these early Christians patient and steadfast. Patient and steadfast. The first Christians never wavered from their faith. They, they read what we just read this morning, mind you. These Christians that Pliny talks about, they read the same book that we read to this day. They took it to heart. They applied it. And we have them to think about, uh, think for it. There's a sociologist I've quoted from him before, uh, Rodney Stark, and he writes this um, in the book, The Rise of Christianity. Uh, he says that um, Christianity didn't grow because of miracles working in the marketplaces, although there may have been much of that going on, or because Constantine said it should, which Constantine made Christianity the official religion in the uh, uh, 4th century for Roman Empire, or even because the martyrs gave it such credibility. It grew because Christians constituted an intense community able to generate the invincible 
obstinacy that offended the younger Pliny, the guy that we just talked about, but yielded immense religious rewards. And the primary means of its growth was through the united and uh, motivated efforts of the growing number of Christian believers who invited their friends and relatives and neighbors to share the good news. They had one trait about them that kept them going. Where Pliny said they were stubborn, they were persistent, they were obstinate. James says, no, they were patient. They were steadfast. James says in, uh, in, in verse, chapter 5, verse 11, he says, Behold, we consider these, he talks about the, those who went before him, we consider these who remain steadfast as blessed. Like th- those who are steadfast are the ones that are blessed. And it was just one generation later after James writes this that the first uh, century Christians take this to heart. And because of their faith, we actually can gather today. That this is the reason why we're here today. He commands them to be patient and steadfast. And the question is, if, if they were patient and steadfast in their faith, what, what could we do if we're patient and steadfast in our faith? Who will one day say, I'm so thankful for that church group or those group of Christians because they were patient and steadfast in their faith? What, who in our city are thanking us for being patient and steadfast in our serving? And if that's just way too big for you to think, think about this. 20 years from now, imagine yourself 20 years from now. How would you counsel yourself today? What would you say to yourself 20 years from now if you can counsel yourself today? Most of us would say, dude, just be patient. Keep going. Be steadfast. Remain under pressure. All right. We're going to look at three things today as we go through this passage. Number one is we're going to ask the question, what does it mean to be patient? Secondly, we'll ask the question, why? Why do we need patience? And then thirdly is how do we get it? What is patience? Why do we need it? And how do we get it? All right. Patience is more than just biting the tongue and waiting in line and not getting angry. Now, I was at Canada's Waterland yesterday, and it tried my patience, right? Because when you're waiting an hour and 30 minutes for a ride that makes you throw up, uh, it tests your patience, right? Uh, we just had a buffet. We ate a buffet, and we went on the behemoth. Bad decision for me. I sat out the next two rides because I was going to throw up. So patience that uh, James is talking about is more than just not getting annoyed with people although it entails that. He uses the analogy of a farmer to help us understand this, okay? Uh, you guys live in the city, unless you have a little green space on your condo rooftop, you really don't know nothing about farming, okay? And so what he does is he's actually saying that, think about a farmer, okay? Think about a farmer. Our farmer plants, and he says he waits two cycles of rain, and he doesn't expect a harvest right away. Nobody plants something and then expects it to grow the next day, unless it's a chia pet, right? <laughs> that he understands that there's two cycles of rain that needs to happen, and then there's a harvest season, right? James uses the word macrothumeo, which just means somebody who is long-suffering. You're willing to put up with something for a long time, right? And he says that actually this is about seasons. Patience is about seasons, The reason why many of you, many of us, have not seen fruit in our lives yet, you haven't seen the harvest yet, is you haven't suffered long enough. Shout out to my young people. 
God's going to move. You're going to get married. You're going to get a job. Whatever it is you want, you just have not suffered long enough. I say that to you young people. I say it to you older people as well. There's a sense in which we've not received the harvest yet because you know why? You just have not waited long enough. You, we, we think that we've planted something and it needs to grow over the next year, the next two years, the next three years. God says, nope, season hasn't ended yet. I put up here, patience means being responsible and staying faithful to a season until its completion. Being responsible, staying faithful to a season until its completion. You have to ask yourself, is the season over yet? No, not yet. Ah, okay, farmer, put your hands back to the plow. Season's not over yet, right? That's patience. Patience is the opposite of quitting before it's time. And that's patience. You see it in verse 12. James admonishes us about commitment. Verse 12 says, Above all, brothers, don't swear either... Um, or I'm going to do this because I'm preaching to this side of the room anyways. Um, James says, but above all brothers, don't swear either by heaven or earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. What's that about? How is he tying this in that you need to be a person of your word? He's saying this, that if you're truly a person of commitment, then people can accept your yes as a yes and not as a maybe. When you say yes to somebody, that they're not expecting that, it, that yes could turn into a no when things get hard or when there's a conflict. Because they know that you're patient in the midst of the seasons. That also means that when you say no, you mean no and not maybe if things get better. <laughs> or if, if things start happening, then a yes. Right? People want to know, are you in or are you out? And that's what James is saying. That's patience. The season's not over yet. If you said yes, you're in. No farmer can expect precious fruit if they're not committed. You can't. Don't raise your kids that way. If you're not committed to your kids and you're kind of like halfway, half out, and like, you know, you cater towards them one week and then not the next week and you, you spank them this week and not the next week, like, you can't be half in. There's no halfsies in a lot of these things. You can't be half in and half out. This is when the girl turns to the guy and says, bro, are you in or are you out? Right? Farmer says, the farmer mentality is, the season is not completed yet. Put my hands to the plow. When is it hardest to stay committed? When is it the most difficult to stay committed, to stay patient? It's when there's disappointment. When people grumble. James points that out. You're doing the best that you can, and then someone else comes along, uh, well-meaning, and they say, whoa, hey, uh, I was looking at this other farmer, and they're doing so much better than you. Like, you, you suck compared to this other farmer. And you're kind of like, oh, gee, thanks. Like, right? When people get disappointed in you, that's when it gets difficult. And in verse 9, James actually gets to the heart of why people lose patience. If you're in a community, if you have a family, your office environment, right, think about this. He gets to the heart of the matter. The reason why people uh, lose patience is because there's disappointment on the team and people grumble. People are disappointed with other people. So he actually goes on to encourage you leadership types, right? He encourages you. He says, don't get discouraged. Consider the prophets. Look at the leaders of the Bible. Think about the leaders. 
And I think what he means is that the leaders of the Bible know how it feels to be disappointed in, and they also know how it feels to be disappointed in others. When you failed people and people fail you, and James is saying, man, there's something about the people in this Bible that they know something about that, right? And so uh, if you think about Moses, um, he's probably one of the greatest examples of the Bible of disappointment. And so the Israelites actually want to kill him because he's taking them on this trek in the desert for 40 years, right? And so no water, no food. This is not a fun deal, right? He's hanging out with them. They think the promised land is a joke that it's never going to come. And so there wasn't enough water to sustain them, not enough food to sustain them. They'd rather, catch this, they'd rather, I'd rather go back to slavery than be with you here in the desert, Moses, right? That's their response to Moses. What does Moses do? Does he like, oh, hey, you know what, guys, let's get along? No. He actually gets frustrated. He grumbles back. <laughs> you, know, like it's, you may have seen this in your workplace, right? The people get upset at the supervisor, and the supervisor says, oh, yeah, I'll tell you, right? So the supervisor gets angry back. He actually gets angry, and in his frustration, he disobeys God. And God says, hey, I'll provide water, but speak to it, and water will come out. Moses, in his frustration, takes a staff, hits it twice. He says, you want water? I'll give you water. Bam, bam, water comes out. And God says, God says no. You, you can't lead this way. You're going to kill people and not lead people. So Moses actually gives us an example of what happens with impatience. Impatience with disappointment leads to panic. And it leads to disobedience to God's word. When people disappoint you, and if you're impatient with them, you're going to panic you're going to do things on your own. You're going to take matters into your own hand. You're going to disregard what you know God's telling you to do because you're trying to get the situation in control. And here's the good news from Moses' situation. God was gracious and merciful to Moses. He was gracious and merciful to Moses. And in turn, Moses was gracious and merciful to the Israelites. And here's what happened. When Moses learned patience, his heart grew for the nation of Israel even though their grumbling grew, all right? His heart grew. And that's exactly what James says in verse 8. He says, be patient, establish your hearts. That when he was patient, it actually grew his heart for the people that were grumbling against him, right? When you're patient with your child, which Lynn and I have been having this conversation this week, when you have to take your one-year-old to the ER at 3 a.m. on Thursday, that's patience, right? And so we're having this conversation. How do we help Abe? The more patient you are with people in your life, the greater your heart grows, the more you become established. That's what happened to Moses. What happened when Moses took them into the desert and they grumbled? He stayed faithful into that season. He continued to circle the desert with Israel. He could have bailed. There were moments where even God wanted to bail. I mean, that's a theological discussion we can have later. But God says, I'm over. I'm going to start with somebody else. Moses, no, no. Keep we'll keep circling God. We'll keep circling. And here's the thing. I think I've said this before. Do you know how long it took for people to get from Egypt to the promised land? You know how many days a trek that was? 11 days by foot. If they just obeyed and not grumbled, they would have been there in 11 days. But because of their grumbling, 40 years of circling in the desert. And once Moses found his patience, he said this, 
I'll keep going at it with you guys. I'll keep circling this desert with you. Come on, Israel. We'll keep going. Moses forfeited his right to go into the promised land, but his heart for the Israelites grew because he kept circling the desert. What do you do when you know that you're doing all that you know to do, and you're praying, and you're, you, you know that you're being faithful, and things just aren't going your way? What do you do in those situations? You keep circling the desert. Be patient, steadfast. Continue to circle the desert of your marriage. Continue to circle the desert of your dead-end job. It's not a dead end. But keep circling that desert. Continue to circle the desert of your relationship with your parents. Keep going back and forth with that one. Keep going back and forth with the people that are hard to work with in your life. Keep circling that desert. Moses, you're not done yet. You keep circling. Farmer, you're not done yet. Season's not over. Keep your hand to the plow. Keep going. Season's not over. Circle the desert. When you circle the desert, like Moses, it doesn't mean that you're going to enter into the promised land. All right? So most of us think, if I'm patient, God's going to give me the thing that I want. Sometimes you circling the desert means that you gave God enough time so that the next generation behind you can enter into the promised land. It may not be you, but somebody, somebody gets to receive the precious fruit for you being in the desert. And guess what? Nobody likes that job. Who wants to sign up for the desert so that your kids can have fun, you know, (laughs) at the resort? Come on, raise your hand. No, not even Linda. Oh, geez. Nobody wants to circle the desert. But it's some, when you do that, you open the door for the people behind you. Here's a, here's a word of advice that I'm learning myself. Um, when people disappoint you, remember that impatience embitters you, but patience establishes your heart. And that's what James is trying to say. So second point, why does this matter? Well, it's exactly that. Because this is about your heart. This is about your heart. James says, firstly, establish your heart. Patience and impatience is a gauge for people to see how healthy you are in your heart. All right? If somebody's impatient with life, with circumstances, if they quit easily, I'm going to venture to say that that's, there's something spiritually unhealthy about their, their, their current moment, their season that they're in. All right? Spiritual maturity is tied to emotional maturity as well. <clears throat> so it could be said that impatient people struggle with spiritual health. And I'm not saying people who get angry easily. I'm talking about people who bail easily, all right? People who quit easily. If you quit easily, that means that there's something emotionally unstable about you, right? This is also true about the physical heart. Just to let you know that there's a physical component to patience. And so there's an article in Live Science um, that was entitled, Why Impatience May Hurt Your Heart. And this is what the um, writer says. He says, people who frequently become impatient and angry are in constant state of stress. The body reacts to that stress by releasing hormones such as adrenaline, cortisol, which help the body to respond to a stressful situation. When you're about to be attacked by a saber-toothed tiger, this response can help you survive. 
but not when you're sitting in traffic or waiting in a long line. High levels of cortisol and adrenaline could ultimately lead to weight gain, which is some of yours' worst nightmare, I know. High blood pressure or high, high blood sugar. If impatience can cause this to happen to your physical heart, don't you think it can also damage your spiritual heart? Most people, when they face disappointment, instead of being patient, they stress out or they panic. And eventually that becomes your natural reaction to disappointment. Every time somebody fails you, you panic. So what you're doing in those moments, and think about this, when's the last time that you were just like, you were on edge? When you choose to live that way, what you're doing is that you're actually allowing your heart to be toxified. Because you're not processing situations, you're reacting. And that's toxic for your heart. You're toxifying it with cynicism, cynicism, anxiety, despair. And so you begin to react with that same thing. You burn with paranoid thoughts because worry breeds worry. Panic breeds panic. So there's a, 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 a picture in The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, um, and he says that there comes a point when you begin to do the things and you just keep doing it out of auto, like an automation. He says that in regards to grumbling, he says, you are no longer just a person that is grumbling or even just a grumbler but you actually become a grumble. <laughs> Before there's a grumbler, there's a grumble. What Lewis is saying is that you're not just sinning anymore. You've become sin. It damages your soul. It damages your heart. When you face disappointment, what does your heart say? Does it say, God, God knows good. He's in charge. I would not have planned this for myself, but he did. So I'll be patient. Is that what you say? Or do you say, ah, not this again. I can't believe this. This always happens to me. Because that's, that's how it sounds like in your heart when you're trusting yourself. Right? Some of you guys are saying, well, that's how I, that's how I always sound. Well, <laughs> this is for you. Don't let your heart grow toxic. Don't let it grow toxic. James says, if your heart is weak, fortify it. If it's dead, renew it. If it's bitter, refresh it. If it's soft and can't take critique, don't harden it. Mature it. If your heart doesn't mature, every act of disappointment will turn you into a quitter. Someone who's not steadfast. Patience matters. It exercises. It strengthens your heart. Secondly, the reason why it matters is, quite frankly, because it's not about you. It's not about you. One of the greatest Christian books ever written in history sold almost as many copies as, uh, I think, 60 million copies worldwide. The first lines in the book says, it's not about you. And that's why you need patience, because it's not about you. There's a generation that's coming behind you. There's a generation, you think you're young, you think you're 28, you think you're, there's, a, there's somebody already coming behind you. Picture, picture yourself holding a door, all right? and a bunch of young people just coming along behind you. Your kids even, all right? Picture kids pushing strollers with kids in it, coming through the door that you're holding. You're holding a door for people. At the end of the day, you're just a greeter. <laughs> really. Be the best greeter that you can be. Don't get tired of holding that door. Don't get tired of that job. 
Season's not over. Hold the door. I love the example of what James gives to Job. Job says, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job. Sorry, James says, you've heard the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord. Why did Job have to be patient? There was a purpose, right? Job's season of turmoil was an example for us. Job held the door for us. Look at how Job struggled in the midst of tragedy. Did he complain? Yes, he complained. Did he feel like giving it up? Yes, he, did. he felt like giving it up. But he always remained in conversation with God. And he did this to build a culture of faith, to build a culture of faith and perseverance with God's people. And here's the interesting thing about Job. You should know this. All right, here's a Bible geeky thing. Um, Job is just as old as Abraham, all right? Abraham and Job existed long before Moses and the written Old New Testament. Think about that, all right? Before there was the Bible, there was Job. In ancient history, before people turned to the Psalms, before people turned to the New Testament, people turned to the story of Job to encourage them to persevere in the midst of suffering. Job was a door holder for generations and generations and generations. His story propped open the door for all of us. So James uses this word steadfast. Steadfast, what does that mean? Like, I, I, very few of you would use the word steadfast at work, would you? Right. So, hey, guys, let's, uh, let's be steadfast in this moment right now because uh, we need to really, like, focus on work, right? You wouldn't use that word. But the, 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 the uh, construction of it is very, very meaningful. The Greek word is hupomenal, which means hupo means to remain. Or, sorry, it means to be under, and then menal means to remain. And the, the connotation is you remain under pressure. It's almost like a military term. I've got a, a picture right here. This is uh, from a movie that they're making in China about um, a, a Chinese war. And imagine me saying to you that there's a front line with heavy fighting over there. there there's a, the front line, heavy fighting right now. And you better, do, you better do everything that you know to do to make sure that front line doesn't fall. Remain steadfast. I don't care how much fire comes at you. You remain steadfast. And this may be how it looks like from day to day, week to week. But you remain steadfast because behind you is a village filled with people that are depending on you. Their future is riding on your ability to be steadfast. Remain under pressure. Hold the line. Build the wall. Season's not over yet. Remain under pressure. You got the picture? Any confirmation? Did you get the picture? Hold the door. Trina Life, we need to be steadfast in what God's called us to be. We don't really need to be super creative. We don't really need to be like the smartest, the best. All we need to do as a church, as an individual, and as a community is remain steadfast to what God has called us in this season. We have no clue how many people are behind us. There may be times when we feel like we're circling the desert. You have no clue how many people are behind you, relying on you to remain steadfast in your faith.
Stay there. Have a vision for your suffering and have a vision for your patience. <clears throat> Lastly is the question, well then, okay, then how, how do I become patient? How do I remain steadfast? When the world seems like it's like all against me and I'm carrying it all on these shoulders, what does it look like for me to be steadfast? And James gives us two hints in the text. One we've already been doing. Uh, one is to look back on those who remain patient under trial and learn from them, draw from their strength. He talks about Job, but he also says, consider the prophets. We looked at Moses this morning. Secondly, he says, look forward. One says, look back. Secondly, says, look forward. Look forward to Jesus' return. And I want to spend a couple of minutes on uh, each one of these. Look back, he says. Look at Moses. Look at Job, right? These are two better than average guys. Anybody here better than Job or Moses by any chance? Okay. These are two better than average guys who experience more than average suffering. Think about that. When the guy that you trust the most and you love the most is experiencing the hardest and they're persevering, doesn't that give you strength? Doesn't it give you encouragement? Doesn't it make you like you have, doesn't it give you the ability to, to keep moving forward? Look at Moses and Job, two of the best guys that you'd ever know in history. They experienced tremendous suffering. You gain courage from them. But this is where the message of Christianity comes in. It says those two men, better than average, point to a man that is the better than average person who suffered the worst than average death. And Moses and Job point to Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the perfect um, uh, Christ. He is better than the average man, and yet he suffered more than the average sufferer. The Bible explains that Jesus, who was perfect, went on the cross took on the sins of the world, took on your sins, took your grumbling, took our disappointments onto himself. He experienced abnormal suffering for a fairly innocent person. And James said, there's something about that. When you look at the cross, when you look at the, the prophets of old, that it should give you strength. If there's any life in you, it should give you some strength back. Look back. Jesus is the true Moses. And you can circle the desert with him. And Jesus is the true Job, the true Job who is steadfast. When, when Jesus' arms were spread on the cross, he held the doors open so people can flood in. Next time Curtis or Christina asks you to be a greeter for Trinity Life, that's a privilege. Because Jesus was the best greeter that Trinity Life ever had, by the way. He was a pretty darn stinking good greeter because he led a lot of people into the house of God when he spread his arms on the cross. He was steadfast on the cross. He held the door so that people could. He is more ancient than Job. He suffered more than Job. And that's why he allowed us to, to come into the family of God, to become children with God, you can hold the door. Hold the door with Jesus. Looking back, but also you can look here. And Jesus is actually the better you, the true you. You may be thinking about quitting. I don't know what you're thinking about quitting. Job, 
situation, quitting, up, quitting on a family member, quitting on a commitment. But it's in your commitment that Christ, I'm sorry, it's in your quitting that Christ gives you mercy and forgiveness. When you fail, when you quit, Jesus is the better you. He's never quit. So when you do quit, draw from his forgiveness, from his mercy. Frankly, some of us, you actually do need to quit on certain things in your life. You need to quit control. You just need to quit controlling things. That's probably the best thing that you really can do. So when you quit controlling things and you allow, you allow Jesus, who's the better you, the better Moses, the better Job, the one who has taken the sins, your sins, your disappointment, your grumbling, when you allow him to live in you, he gives you the strength to be committed. Don't, don't ever commit to a Christian commitment. I want to say this. I would say with any kind of commitment. But I would say never commit. I would say this. Don't commit to training your life. Never commit to anything that has to do with the body of Christ or mission on your own strength. That's the worst thing that you could do. But because Jesus is the better you that never quits, commit to the body of Christ, commit to Jesus' mission based off of what Jesus has done, based off of his strength. All right, last and secondly is uh, how do you gain patience? You look back and then you also look forward. And this is no small thing. I reserved it for the last, but this is not a small thing. This is actually the biggest thing, actually, of James's passage. He says, it's the reason why the church continues to this day. As James says, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Be patient until then, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He's saying Jesus is coming back, guys. He's coming back not just to undo suffering, but when he comes back, the evil that we thought was evil and like we could never imagine, it becomes like this beautiful memory that actually justifies that it happened. And it's a weird thing. That's what the resurrection does. But the second coming actually, when Jesus comes back, right, and Muslims believe this too, that Jesus is going to set the world right. And it's going to be so beautiful that our memories of suffering will be like beautiful memories. And James is saying, that's, what's, that's our ending. That's what you have to be patient about. It's okay when people critique you. It's okay, it's okay when you fail. You stay the course because at the end, we already know Jesus wins the day. All right. Have you guys ever picked up a novel and you read the last chapter? Anybody ever done that before? Come on now. You never did that in high school. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Me and Wendy. Nobody's ever done that. Wow, okay. Well, I can justify myself for doing it, okay? Because James does it in the Bible here. He tells the Christians, God already gave the ending away. Jesus is coming back. He wins. Be patient. There's something about knowing the ending of a story that keeps you steadfast when you're stuck in the middle of it. And there's so much suspense because you don't know what's going to happen. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. James says Jesus is going to come back. Keep at it. It's worth it. What you thought was ugly is going to be made beautiful. It's worth it. Keep at it. Hold the line. Be steadfast. Remain under pressure. Circle the desert. It will be worth it.
I'm going to read uh, Psalms 40 as we close here um, and get ready to move into communion. This is for, uh, a psalm that David wrote, and uh, it's just so chalked full of uh, hope. David writes, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. You see what David is saying? He says, I waited patient for the Lord. The situation was dire. He showed up, and there was a group full of people behind me that came through the door. God, this morning as I um, preach this to myself and as I tell this to my own soul and, and tell myself, establish yourself, heart, and be patient and be steadfast. God, I pray that you would remind us that, Jesus, when you did that, when you were on the cross uh, persevering uh, the worst death that we could ever die, on our behalf. Remind us that, Lord, it was because there, there were many behind you that you were holding doors open for. And God, as we think about the, the close of James and how he was admonishing the church, continue on, guys. Keep doing what you, need to know, what you know you need to do. Just do the right thing. It, it blows my mind that people listened to that. People were, when people read this letter, they actually applied it. And when persecution came, that they actually persevered. God, what is that? Give that to us, Lord. Give that to Trinity Life. Give that to the churches in our city. We can't be patient and steadfast in our own strength. And if this morning, if you have had thoughts of quitting, quitting on life, quitting on yourself, quitting on people, I want to encourage you that God has not quit on you. God has not quit on you. That God gave his all in Jesus Christ. That if you trust in him, if you trust in him, everything will be made beautiful in the end. We're going to move into communion this morning. And uh, you don't have to rush into it. This is the time where you can reflect a little bit. The band will lead us in a song. But as we go into communion, I want you to reflect on what it is that God is challenging you in your heart. And as you take the body, which represents uh, 